As uh, Ben mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. And uh, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different than normal because I'm going to kind of intro and uh, do an overview of the whole book. So we're not going to have one set of verses or one chapter that we camp out in and go through. Um, so we, uh, we're going to do a, a seven-week series on Daniel. So I'm going, to, I'm going to do the intro this morning, and then we're going to do chapters one through six. Um, so we'll hit a chapter each week. Uh, Daniel's an a, a important book. It's got a lot in it. Um, so we're going to hit a lot of the narrative stuff, and then we're going to um, not hit the end of the book where there's a lot of difficult dreams and interpretations. Um, so <laughs> Sean's on sabbatical. I don't know what you expect. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so that, that's kind of the plan, and then we're going to launch into a new series in the fall. So uh, let me pray, and then, uh, then we'll get started with things. So Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can gather together. I thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is alive, that it's active. Thank you that you are alive, that you are active, that you are working for our good. Lord, that our faith is not in vain. I thank you that you're sovereign and in control of things, Lord, despite what we see around us, despite how we feel. You haven't changed. You are still perfect, and you're still dealing perfect with us. So confess my anxiety, my desire to bring glory to myself. Just pray that you would get the glory this morning, Lord, as we are sinful. We can do nothing of good on our own accord apart from you. So we pray for help this morning in this text, in this book, and I pray that you'll use these next seven weeks, Lord, to encourage us. In your name, amen. So there's something happening this fall that's pretty big. I mean, there's more than one thing, but this is pretty big, and not a lot of people are talking about it. Um, it's going to affect a lot of people, um, and so you would think it would be getting more attention than it is. It's going to be final in November. It's um, presidential election. You guys, you guys heard about this? It's probably all that you've heard about, actually, especially with the uh, one of the nominations wrapping up this week. So, um, you know, maybe you're psyched out of your mind about the possibility of Donald Trump, or maybe you have gotten Hillary Clinton tattooed on the small of your back, or maybe uh, you're planning to move to Costa Rica because the thought of either candidate makes you want to vomit. Um, regardless of how you feel about the economy or social issues or politics, Daniel has a lot of hope to offer us here and has a lot to say to us even today. So some of the most famous stories in the Bible are in Daniel. You have Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, you have uh, Nebuchadnezzar's. He has a couple of interesting dreams. The Lord turns him into basically a wild animal. So um, there are a lot of well-known stories in Daniel, even if, you know, even if you're not a, a professing believer, probably some of these stories you've heard about. Um, so, you know, my hope and my prayer is, is as we go through these, uh, and a lot of the other pastors are going to preach, preach through these uh, chapters specifically over the coming weeks, that it's not kind of old hat of things that you've heard before, because there's a lot in the book, there's a lot that God wants to show us. And um, so today I'm going to give you, uh, kind of as a roadmap, uh, I'm going to give you a timeline of kind of what happened leading up to Daniel, what's going on when Daniel's around, and what happens after Daniel. Uh, give you some background, just kind of historically what's happening, uh, what the political environment's like, 
um, talk about some of the main messages from the book itself, and then also talk about um, a couple lessons from the life of Daniel specifically and a couple lessons from the book of Daniel specifically. So uh, again, it's going to be a little unusual in that we're not going to camp out fully kind of in one text. It may feel a little bit um, like history class. So uh, nobody fall asleep. Um, I know it's really cold in here, so you probably are comfortable and could fall asleep. Um, if you see me wiping my forehead, um, it's to prevent sweat from running down. So our air conditioners are working as hard as they can, but the building's old, the air conditioners are old, so it's a little warm. Um, but, uh, but we'll be done before three, so it won't get too hot. Um, so the timeline of when Daniel happens is, um, the, if, you, if you're thinking in, about it in terms of, um, you have God establishes his theocracy where he calls his people and he sets up kings. And the second king in Israel was David. And David is this man who's called a man after God's own heart. He made some big mistakes, but in general, his life is characterized by faithfulness to God. And he pointed his people, he pointed the Israelites to serve God. And then after Daniel, you have Solomon who becomes king. And Solomon is David's son. And when he becomes king, everything is going really well. He, he builds this beautiful and rival temple that God's presence dwells in. Um, God gives him um, the supernatural wisdom. And um, there's, David had spent most of his, king, his time as king fighting with Israel's enemies. God has now allowed them to defeat a lot of those enemies. There's this time of extended peace. Wars and striving have ceased. And there's this, this abundant wealth in Israel. And so things seem to be set up to just, Israel is going to be God's people and they're going to worship him and it's going to be good forever. And then toward the end of Solomon's life, he turns away from the Lord and he begins to worship these idols. So these false gods, these images that are not real. And so um, after Solomon dies, you get this section that's really hard to read in the Old Testament. And it goes something like this. This man became king and he pursued wickedness and didn't love God. Then this man became king and he pursued wickedness and didn't serve God. Then this man became king and pursued wickedness and didn't serve God or love God. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And sometimes it can be hard to, to read that. And the, and, and the point God's trying to make is that apart from him, bringing about good in our lives. We'll, we'll run from him and we'll choose wickedness um, and, and that we're not inherently good, that we're stained with sin and that we need him to, to give us salvation. Now, through there, there are sprinkled some kings who are faithful and who point the people to God and they tear down all of the idol worship. But for the most part, it's this, it's this long history of rebellion of God's people. And so Daniel comes in kind of at the end of this train of kings. And so God's going to allow his people to be conquered by a foreign king. He's going to allow, he's going to have them be sent away from their land to become exiles in a foreign land. And he's going to begin this transition of moving from this theocracy to this period of expectation where people are waiting for the promised Messiah to come and bring salvation because they've kind of realized that, you know, it's not going to happen with, with earthly leaders. And so Daniel is kind of the beginning of this transition. And so um, I, have a, uh, I have a timeline. This looked better on my computer, by the way. It's really pixelated, I know. But I have, a, I have another one that is much clearer, but impossible to read because it's so small. So it'll get better. Um, 
So you have the beginning, creation, and then you have God calling Abraham. Then you have the period of the patriarchs. So you have, um, you have uh, Isaac, and then you have um, Jacob, and then you have his sons. And then you have the Exodus, where they leave Israel. Uh, they go into the promised land. Then you have a period of judges. And then this is where the monarchy is established. So this is where you get King Saul, then King David. Then you get this long period of kings. So it goes all the way to, to about 600 B.C. And again, remember B.C., the higher the number, the longer ago it happened. So 600 B.C. is longer ago than 500 B.C. So you get this period of kings, and this is where you get First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and a lot of the prophets, where you get all of this. These men are wicked. They're running away from God. The people are running away from God. You get the prophets exhorting people to come back. And then you get the Babylonian exile. So you can see you get Jeremiah... Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. So Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he's telling the people of God what to do and all they do is just treat him terrible and don't listen to him. Then you get Lamentations. The name of the book is pretty self-explanatory. There's lament, there is sadness. And then you get um, Ezekiel and Daniel were contemporary, so they actually overlapped. And so Ezekiel is kind of living among the people of Israel and then God has put Daniel in the, the, the court of the world ruler, Okay. So then after Daniel, you get Nehemiah and Ezra kind of taking the people back to Jerusalem, kind of reestablishing God's people. Then you get a few prophets, and then you get nothing for 400 years. So the prophets kind of point to this coming Messiah, this age of expectation, and how God's going to establish his church and deal differently with his people. And, and, and then you get no, basically, revelation or... or um, you know, direct word from God for 400 years. So where Daniel picks up, I think it's helpful to kind of know where we are and, and kind of where we're going. So the second timeline, again, much clearer, hopefully a magnification on. Um, so it kind of, the reason I like this one is it shows more of the people. So you can kind of see where Moses and Joshua are, then David and Solomon. Then you, again, you kind of see, you don't really get any names. You get Isaiah, Hezekiah, you get a few kings, but you basically get all these kings that are just running from God, and this kingdom splits into two. So now you have Israel and you have Judah. Then you get Ezekiel and the Babylonian exile, which is where Daniel picks up. So, um, so that's really the, the timeline of where we are. So let's talk about a little bit about the background of where we are. So Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. Around then is, is when most scholars estimate it was written. And it covers the events from 605 B.C. to 537 B.C. And what you get is you get Daniel, who primarily the book's about him. You get some of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of these other people that are in his community of faith. Um, but the book is primarily about him. And we should know a little bit more about uh, his life. So he served under, um, we know at least four different kings. So Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, the Mede, and then Cyrus, the king of Persia. So he, he, his country gets conquered. He gets taken to Babylon. Then while he's in Babylon, Babylon gets conquered by the Persians, and now he's serving under this, this new foreign ruler. So he, um, he sees a lot of transition. He sees a lot of change happen in his life. Um, at the time of the invasion of Babylon, Jehoiakim is king of Judah, where Daniel lives. And Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim is not following the Lord. He's not exhorting the people to follow God. He's worshiping false idols. He's wicked. He's, he's, 
you know, not dealing fairly with the people. Daniel's about 15 to 18. So he's young. You know, imagine if, if, if you're living in the U.S. and we were to go to war, some lose, you know, you're 15 to 18. Somebody comes in and says, hey, you're not going to be living here anymore. We're shipping you off here. And we're going to kind of tell you what to do and what your life is going to look like. So um, he's in a difficult circumstance, and he could have responded very differently. He could have gotten angry. He could have gotten bitter. He could have turned away from the Lord. Um, he could have gone a lot of directions in his life because, um, as we'll see, he was from a very prominent family, um, and he was potentially even of royal descent. We know he was from a noble family. Um, he had, the way he was set up in Israel, things were going to go pretty good for him because he was from a prominent family, probably with a lot of wealth. He had, you know, probably, he was a, a smart guy. He had a lot of, um, he, he had a pretty clear path laid out before him. But God comes in and kind of changes all of that, you know, with this exile to Babylon. So I want to transition and talk a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon because a lot of the book centers around when Babylon is in charge, uh, there's some with the Persians being in charge, and, and um, most of the narrative chapters involve Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so we'll get a couple other uh, exposure to Belshazzar and, and Darius and Cyrus, but the first four chapters of the book, all Nebuchadnezzar is kind of king. Uh, he was king of Babylon from, five, from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. So um, his dad, Nabopolassar, I looked that up on the internet. That's how you pronounce it. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And, and, and while he was king, um, Nebuchadnezzar is out kind of leading battles, leading these conquests of Babylon so that they're expanding their power and becoming more powerful as a kingdom. And then his dad dies, so he moves to, back to the city of Babylon to become king. And he spends most of his life kind of... Um, displaying, uh, building up wealth for himself and for the, for the kingdom of Babylon and kind of displaying his greatness for everyone to see. So he's one of these kind of guys that's like really in your face with, with what he has going on. Um, he was the, the kind of the prime ruler of the ancient world when he was in charge. So there were other kingdoms. It's not that, that he ruled the whole world, but Babylon was the big kind of superpower at that time. Um, in the city of Babylon, he had this great palace that he had built for himself. And um, when you have a city back then, you had to have walls around it. That was really the only way to protect it. And so the city of Babylon was about 2,500 acres, which is really big for that time, because again, you've got to have a wall around this thing. And it's estimated that um, by the IVP Atlas Bible history, that the northern outer defense wall had, was made from 164 million bricks. That's a lot of bricks, especially when you consider there were no machines to make the bricks. These were all handmade, all hand laid. And so, um, you know, he's, he's using, uh, the Israelites at this point are kind of one step above slaves. So they've been brought into exile, um, into this foreign land. And Nebuchadnezzar's whole goal is to kind of show the world how great and, and wealthy he is. So this wall that he builds around the city is 17 miles uh, long, and it's wide enough that chariots can even pass by each other on it. So it's this, it's this really big wall. And on a lot of the bricks, this is what he has stamped, because he's this very kind of haughty, prideful guy, as you'll see, and one of, the Lord rebukes him directly for this. Uh, but this is what he had stamped. 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provides for Esagila and Azida. Those are the two temples in Babylon, two of the temples in Babylon. The eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon am I. So not only is he having this giant wall built, he's having all these bricks stamped with his name on it so that there's no doubt who is the greatest king in the world, or, you know, maybe in his mind, the greatest king ever. Um, and so the kingdom also possessed these hanging gardens, um, which I remember reading a little bit about these when I was in school. Uh, is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it was like this vaulted terrace um, garden that had all kinds of trees and flowering plants and shrubs in it, and he built it for his wife. His wife had a big affinity for horticulture and um, you know, he wanted to give her, give her a big gift. So this guy's kind of, you know, flashy. You want to be on his Christmas list, so to speak. If, you know, if he's going to be handing out gifts, it's probably going to be pretty good. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Daniel and who Daniel was. So um, as I mentioned, Daniel was uh, sent. He was brought out to serve the king. He's this young guy who's been removed from, you know, his home, sent into a foreign land, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, appoints him the ruler of the wise men. And he's also a, a province, a ruler of the province of Babylon. And so um, you can imagine, this is probably not making a lot of people happy because the, the Babylonians are ruling the world. They're the ones that are in charge. And then you have this exile, this foreigner, who's appointed as leader over all of these wise men in Babylon. And so, you know, they're, they're saying, hey, look, we are, we're the, we're the ruling majority here. Why are, you putting this, why are you putting this guy in charge of us? And so, again, remember the Jews at this point, they don't have any resources. They don't have any wealth. Um, they're kind of one step above, you know, forced labor. They're being told what to do and kind of when to do it. But Daniel, God is able to work through all of that to put Daniel into a position of authority. And we'll see later, he becomes the most powerful man in the kingdom, save the king. Um, and, and the other thing to keep in mind through all of this is that God is, is, is very sovereign over world, le world leaders because you have this Jewish man whose country loses a war. He becomes a powerful leader, one of the three most powerful Peter, people in the new kingdom. You have that kingdom that gets conquered and then he transitions into that kingdom also to be a world, you know, one of the most powerful leaders. And so when I was growing up, the Cold War was still alive and, and well between us and Russia. And I remember, I think in the, in the mid-80s, they made this mini-series about we went to war with Russia, kind of World War III happened, and we lost. And now we're being ruled by Russia. And, um, and a lot of people thought, you know, that could really happen. And it was, it was kind of, I remember I didn't want to watch it because it, it kind of scared me. And um, so imagine, you know, this kind of scenario where we go to war with Russia, we lose, and then, you know, Putin takes one of our people, puts him in charge of his government. Then Russia goes to war with someone else. They lose, and then that leader takes the same person and puts him in charge. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to fathom that this could happen to somebody. But again, it highlights God is working his plan despite the circumstances that we see around us. Um, Ezekiel, who I mentioned was a contemporary to Daniel, he mentions Daniel uh, along with Noah and Job as an example of a righteous life pleasing to God. So Ezekiel is able to see from afar 
how God is using Daniel. Because again, Ezekiel is living with the people of Israel and in their struggles, Daniel's kind of with these rulers. Um, and Daniel's there for a long time. I mean, he was over, he was at least 90 years old when he died. Um, he was at least in his 80s when he was thrown in the lion's den. So you maybe have this like young strapping Daniel being pictured in the lion's den, but he was, he was an old man when that happened to him. So he, he saw and he had to endure a lot of things, but he was faithful to the Lord and the Lord was faithful to him. Um, so I want to talk some about the main messages of the book. Probably one of the biggest messages is that God's people are always in a foreign land. So if you read um, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about us being strangers uh, and aliens in this world. And so God's people are certainly in a foreign land here because they've, they've been conquered, they've been removed, they've been put in Babylon. Um, and, and so now, you know, again, they're struggling to try to figure out what God's doing here. But the message for us is, is this is not our home. We as God's people are living in a foreign land. We, it should, it sh- there should be some things that make us feel uncomfortable. Um, we should expect suffering. And, and none of those should discourage us or make us feel like God is against us or not working on our behalf. He is working his purposes perfectly. And there will be a day, there will come a day when we are at home, when we're at our true home with him where there is perfection and there are no more tears and there are no more, there is no more pain. And so we can see how God can work his plan through Daniel being an alien in a foreign land. But we should remember, um, I mean, picture, imagine if, if after the service, you know, I marched you out to my car and drove you to the airport and put you on a one-way ticket to, you know, Zimbabwe. And, and you didn't know anybody there and you couldn't speak the language. It would feel lonely. It would feel uncomfortable. Um, maybe not for Gladman, but, um, for everyone else it would. (laughs) So it's probably how he felt when he came here. Um, so, you know, this is our, it shouldn't feel natural here living in, in the world because this is not our home, but we can look forward with eager expectation to know that we are going to our home. Daniel had a faithful community to support him. So we'll see in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream. He asked, all of his wise men to tell him the dream. He won't tell it to him and to tell it, to, tell it, tell them him the interpretation. So you can imagine they're flabbergasted because literally there are infinite possibilities of what the dream could have been, but he won't tell them. And so Daniel goes, and this is, uh, he has a faithful community of believers that he leaned on for comfort, support, and prayer and friendship. And this is what he says in Daniel 2, 17 through 19. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Hebrew names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names. He made the matter known to, the, to his companions and told them, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So the king has said, if nobody can tell me my dream and interpret it, all the wise men are dying. Daniel is the ruler of the wise men, so he's probably dying first. Um, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of night of the night. Then Daniel blessed God, blessed the God of heaven. So you see Daniel, he's, not, he's in this difficult situation. He's surrounded by a lot of people that are not blessing God, that are worshiping idols, but he still has a community of people that he's surrounding himself with. And if you read, certainly in the New Testament, God has installed the church to provide, you know, um, edification, admonishing, 
encouragement, rebuking. But if you read in the Old Testament too, you'll see, um, you know, Moses had Aaron. People didn't operate kind of in silos or by themselves. And so Daniel has a community of people. He turns to that community of people when he's in trouble and he leans on them. And then one of the last main messages is that God's purposes are always working despite what we see. So again, it would have been easy for Daniel and his companions to get very discouraged about their lot in life, about how things were changing around them um, and their circumstances, but they don't. And so we see this time, which is one of the worst times of the, of the, of, in the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's one of the lowest points for them. This is a time where God provides an abundant amount of revelations about the future and what's going to happen. And so he didn't do that when times were great and everybody was rich because Solomon was king. He uses this hard time to really show off his power, show off his might by prophesying about what he's going to do in the future and making good on that. And so um, Daniel points to his sovereignty and the amazing things that he can do. And this is what Daniel says in, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He's literally seen this happen. He's seen kings be conquered. He's seen God put new kings in. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what, you, what we ask of you. So you see the we there, he's gone. This is connect back, connection back to community. We've gone and asked, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel is trusting the Lord despite these circumstances, and God is faithful to him. So I want to transition to use the rest of our time to talk about a couple lessons from the life of Daniel and then a couple lessons from the book of Daniel. So um, the first one is that God is at work through persecution and we are to remain faithful. So again, remember Daniel's a foreigner. He's Jewish. He's living in the midst of of Babylonian rulers. He's in the minority. Um, But God uses him to become the most powerful man in Babylon. And... um, He suffers persecution, and this is probably nowhere more clearly than Daniel chapter 6. So in Daniel chapter 6, you have these enemies. They hate that Daniel, this foreigner, is prospering ahead of them. They cannot stand it. So they seek to find all of these ways to discredit him. They they look at his dealings, and he's not not stealing money from the king. He's not dealing harshly with people or, or treating them like dirt unless they meet his every whim. And so this is what they literally say in Daniel chapter 6, verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel. Again, you can get the contempt for, you know, when somebody says like those kinds of people, it's very dehumanizing. You get, you know, this Daniel. They don't care about Daniel. They care about themselves. We cannot find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they realize he's righteous and he's blameless. And the only way to get Daniel in trouble is to rig the system against him. And so that's exactly what they do. They go to the king and they say, King, you are so great. Again, Nebuchadnezzar already thinks this. He's stamping it on all these bricks. 
You are so great. You are so mighty. You should pass a law. Sorry, this is, this is uh, Darius. Got confused. This is Darius. You're so great. You're so mighty. You should pass a law that if anybody prays to anybody other than you for 30 days, they'll be killed. So imagine the absurdity of this. You're praying to a human who has no power to deliver you. And, but if you don't do that, then you're going to be killed. So Daniel's put in a very difficult spot. And if you've lived any length of time, you've experienced injustice. If you have a sibling, I can guarantee you there was a time your parents came down on you when you were not the guilty party and it was your brother or your sister. Um, you may have experienced some injustice through your time in school. You may have experienced injustice at work. Uh, with the law, you may have experienced racial injustice. We are sinful people to the core. And so it's impossible to live this life without experiencing injustice. However, I would say that no matter what you've gone through, you probably haven't dealt with Congress and the president passing a law specifically singling you out. And so that's what Daniel's dealing with here. He, he's caught. He either has to continue to honor God and probably be killed, or he has to blaspheme God to save his life. So he's in a really, really difficult situation. And so um, these men are blinded by their jealousy and their pride. They don't care about Daniel. They're willing to kill him to get what they want. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that happens in life more than we want it to. But Daniel continues praying to God. He remains faithful. He has faith in God. And so he's thrown into the lion's den to be savagely eaten. And God literally shuts the mouths of the lions. And he's delivered out of the hand of this injustice. And so um, there are a lot of parallels here with Christ and his suffering. Daniel was innocent. He was blameless. God uses this to proclaim... To, to proclaim his greatness to the whole world. So Darius actually issues an edict, and it says, to all the peoples of the world. And he basically says in that edict that God is the only true God. He's the only one that, you know, is worthy of worship. And so God uses Daniel's suffering and, and unjust, injustice to glorify himself the same way he uses Christ. So Christ died as an innocent man. He bore our sins when we deserve that death. But yet through that suffering, was extended salvation to the whole human race. Um, and so it's important. I know you have suffered. I know you will suffer. You may currently be suffering. And it, it can be scary. It can feel overwhelming. It hurts deeply to go through suffering. But you can take heart that God is going to use your suffering for your good and for his glory. So the second lesson I want to talk about is that Daniel was as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. And Jesus actually coins this phrase in Matthew um, chapter 10, verse 16. And so Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles, and he's telling them um, that it's going to be rough. This is what he says in, in verse 16. Beholding, behold, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. I don't know if you know much about shepherding, but wolves are the opposite of where you want to send your sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so Jesus goes on to tell them they're going to be arrested. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be hated. They're going to be persecuted. He tells them later that some of them are going to even die simply because they have faith in him and they believe that he's the Messiah, the chosen one to save the human race. And so he knows they're going to be in difficult circumstances and difficult circumstances require wisdom. So he's preparing them to be 
as shrewd as snakes, but also as innocent as doves. They need to be blameless. They need to use wisdom, but they need to be blameless. And when I was reading through Daniel over the last month or so, this, this phrase just kept coming back through my mind. As you see all of the things that he has to endure, that he has to go through, all of the, the difficult situations that seem like no-win situations for him, but God is faithful through his faithfulness. And so the very first one is right when he gets to Babylon, he's put in the court of the king, and there's this leader over him and all these other Hebrew you know, guys, young bucks that are between 15 to 20, and, and they're given this diet, and they're supposed to be trained, they're supposed to get the best education, the best food, and these guys are going to be you know, primed to be um, worthy advisors to the king of Babylon. Well, Daniel, they show up, and the first day, you know, the spread of the king is put out there, and it has all this food on it that they're not supposed to eat. And so they're in a, they're in a difficult spot. They either have to violate their conscience and what God's forbidden them to eat, or, you know, they got to go to these, these people who've just conquered them and try to beg for mercy. So um, Daniel goes to the leader, and he says, hey, look, I, I can't eat some of this food. Just let me vegetables and water. And the leader's in a hard spot, too, because the leader has been chosen by the king, which is an honor. But in those days, if you didn't do your job, you probably didn't get fired. You probably got killed. So, you know, these kings are not pleasant people. And they, again, they think you exist to serve them. And so the, the leader doesn't want to thumb his nose at the king and say, you know, that food you gave, we didn't think it was good enough. So we decided to go our own way, because that'd be an easy way to, to get... So... Daniel doesn't give up, though. He says, look, just give me 10 days. Give me and my friends 10 days. We'll eat vegetables and water. If we look weaker, we'll, we'll eat the king's food. If we look okay, then don't make us violate our conscience. And so Daniel's willing to submit. He's not, he's not willing to just, you know, to, to basically just resist all authority that God's put in his life. But he's, he's trying to be innocent before the Lord. And so the 10 days goes by. Daniel and his friends look a lot stronger, a lot fresher than, the, than all their, their other contemporaries. So then, now the leader comes in and says, we're getting rid of the king's food. Everybody's going to eat vegetables and water. And so all of these Hebrews are now able to be right in the sight of God because of Daniel's righteousness. And so his righteousness not only affected him, but it provided a way out for all of these other people who were too afraid to, to say anything and were just kind of going along out of fear. Um, Daniel's also put in a tight spot where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And um, he, again, is, is the most powerful leader in the world at that point. And he has this dream. It's disturbing. God shows Daniel the revelation of the dream. And the revelation of the dream is that God's going to humble Nebuchadnezzar and take his throne away from him. Well, that's not a message you want to say to the king in this time. Um, because, you know, the, the, nobody really... When you have that much power, there aren't a lot of people who tell you the truth. There are a lot of people who say what you want to hear. And so Daniel uses wisdom. He has the interpretation of the dream. He, he either needs to lie to the king to try to save himself or tell the king the truth and let the circumstances be what they may. So he uses wisdom. He doesn't say anything. And finally, the king prompts him and says, look, I can tell you're upset. Don't worry about it. I need you just to tell me the truth. And so after prompting, again, I think Daniel's using wisdom there. After prompting, he tells him the dream, and he starts it by, this dream is going to be bad for you, king, but I hope it's for your enemies. He tells him the dream that the kingdom is going to be ripped away from him, that he's going to live like a wild animal in the pasture. Very humbling. 
But then he ends it with a call to, to repentance and hope. And he says, look, let this dream be a warning. Give your heart to the Lord. Acknowledge him. You know, confess your pride. And, and this won't happen. And so I'm sure after he said that, after he finished telling about the dream, it was probably dead silent in the throne room because everybody's probably just sitting and waiting to watch Daniel get butchered up. Because again, you don't talk to the king this way. They could, they could kill you if you were in a bad mood and said, you know, something, that, a joke that they didn't think was funny. So the king doesn't kill Daniel. He basically thanks him for telling the truth, sends him on his way, and then God fulfills the dream and sends, you know, Nebuchadnezzar uh, off his throne. And so, again, we see Daniel kind of using, using wisdom through this whole circumstance, but also speaking the truth in love to the king. He tells him about the judgment, but he also calls him to hope and repentance. And David, I think, is giving us a similar message in Psalm 37, 5, and 6. This is what he says. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So Daniel's trusting God through all of these difficult circumstances. So I want to close with a couple lessons from the book itself. And um, both of them, I think, are very important. The first one is um, God is unique and he is glorious. So we're going to read a lot about Daniel's interaction with these world leaders, with these kings. And the thing you need to remember about the kings is they're unpleasant. They're moody. They're narcissists. Um, they think others exist to serve them. They're not interested in how you feel. They're not interested in, in serving anyone. They're arrogant. They're greedy. Nebuchadnezzar is, is trying to hoard everything for himself and, and show everyone how great he is. I'm not a psychiatrist, but they seem to have some psychotic tendencies that they'll kill people for almost nothing. Um, and it's really important when we read about these kings, because if you read uh, much about history, um, you'll read, you know, if you read much about rulers in history, a lot of what you read is not good. Um, I just finished... Uh, a month or so ago reading a biography about um, Joseph Stalin. And I was going to read more about kind of Russia and communism, but I was so depressed after it was over, I thought I would take a break from it. So it's really important not to take um, what you see in leaders now or in the past and overlay how they act onto God. Because if you do, you'll picture God as kind of this bully who's bigger than everybody else, who if you don't do what he likes will cause bad things to happen to him, to you. You may picture him as really smug or, or arrogant or out to get you. Um, and scripture paints a very different picture of who God is. That's not who God is at all. Scripture makes it clear that God is perfect, meaning he's incapable of dealing with us in an unjust way. Um, the, God is the very essence of love. There's no love that exists outside of him. Any love that we have is love that he's imparted to us. He's the only source of love. Now, that doesn't mean that he's a benevolent grandfather that'll give you whatever you want because you asked. That's not real love. Um, and so the, the picture that, that um, Scripture paints of God does have some things like jealousy in it. It does have his wrath in it. But these are not jealousy and wrath like you would picture from a worldly king who's really only concerned about, about you giving him your attention and, and, and you giving him his due, and he has no regard for you. God's jealousy for you is motivated out of love. He knows when you don't serve him, 
that you're destroying your lives, that you're filling your lives with things that are harmful, that will tear you apart. And so his jealousy is motivated by love that he wants you to serve the purpose of what he fulfilled for you. And so be careful um, not not to take these leaders and overlay that onto God. In fact, Scripture tells us in Revelation 4, 8, there are these beings that live with God, these four living creatures. And it says, And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we see a similar picture in Isaiah. God, holy means different. God is so different than, than anything that we encounter that we've got to be careful not to compare him to earthly examples of leadership. We've got to seek to understand him for who he is. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a wrong picture of God. So be careful as we're going through these um, to remember that whatever God does, it's out of an act of love. It's out of an act of mercy. You'll see after he humbles Nebuchadnezzar and sends him into the field, Nebuchadnezzar actually blesses God for making that happen. So again, he's not, he's not just trying to exude his power and, and rule over everybody uh, because he doesn't care about you. The last lesson that I want to talk about from the book of Daniel is um, the warnings, uh, a warning about doubt and a hope for those who do doubt. Um, so you may be one who struggles with does God really exist? Is, is the death, the, what Jesus did, is that really real? Did God really create the earth? Um, you may have all of these thoughts and struggles about who God is, believer or unbeliever. And um, I, you may long to just see something real from God. I have a family member who have often had conversations about God and faith in God. And she said on multiple occasions, if I could just see God one time tangibly demonstrate his power, I would have faith to believe. And it sounds, it sounds logical, but I think Nebuchadnezzar's life is a big warning to us that even if, you, even if God humored you and did what you asked him to do, the better chance, chances are better that you still would doubt and, and not believe in him. You may try to explain it away or you may come up with some new criteria for God. Three times Nebuchadnezzar is confronted directly with God and you see him turn away in unbelief. So the first one happens when um, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this disturbing dream, the one I referenced earlier. He's not going to tell anybody the dream. He's demanding that, that people come forward, tell him the dream, and tell him the interpretation. So Daniel does, and he's amazed. And so this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He said, truly your God is the God of God's. Big G, God of little God's G. And the Lord, big L of kings, little K. Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, is, is amazed at who God is. Again, remember, he's spending his time and energy building up his wealth and his greatness and building up these temples to their false gods that don't exist. And he comes face to face with God. And so you would think, that's enough. Now he'll believe. But what you see is you see him fall right back into his unbelief and his own idol worship. And so in um, Daniel chapter 3, we see 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar makes this giant golden statue, pure gold. It's really tall. You can see it from a long way away. And he wants everybody to bow down to it. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. So the king, again, remember these guys are very volatile and they're not used to be t being told no. He orders them burned to death. He is not having people not doing what he says when he says it. So he has this furnace heated up so hot that some of the people working on the furnace actually died preparing the fire. Then he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into this furnace. They don't burn up. He's overwhelmed. He tells them to call out, to come out. And this is what he says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, How great are his signs, meaning God, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So you see him shifting. The first time he was talking about, man, God's really impressive. He can reveal these mysteries. Now you actually see him talking about God's kingdom. So he's even more impressed. He's saying, this is the only real lasting kingdom. It'll last past mine. It'll last past other men. It lasts from generation to generation. So now you're thinking, he's seen the second miracle. This is going to seal it for this guy. He's going to believe in God. But we get to chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He comes face to face to God, with God. He has this dream, and he's disturbed by it. So he calls Daniel. Daniel comes in and says, hey, look, you become proud in your heart. You're not acknowledging who God is. And so if you don't stop, God's going to take your throne away and you're going to become a wild animal. So Nebuchadnezzar, you know, basically says, thanks for your honesty and doesn't heed the dream. So this is what it says in Daniel 4, 29 through 32. At the end of 12 months, he, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, so he's kind of talking to himself, okay? So he's kind of walking. He's on the roof so he can see all of his minions, all of his wealth. This is what he says. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So you can see this guy does not have a confidence problem. While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, I wish I had James Earl Jones' voice, but I don't. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So God is very tangibly letting Nebuchadnezzar know you, your very lungs have breath because I put the air in there. You are nothing. And again, God's not just trying to be the biggest bully on the block. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says when he comes back. When his sanity returns to him, he comes back. He says, Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all of his works are right and his ways are just. This man has been eating grass in a field and he's calling God right and just. For all of his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Nebuchadnezzar is not mad because he lost the staring contest. He realizes who God is for the first time. And we don't know exactly what happened, but from that verse, you know, it seems like he's maybe finally getting it. So 
I would encourage you and caution you. If, caution you, if you think a miracle would seal the deal for you and you would believe in God and you would never have any doubts again, don't kid yourself. There's a, there's a good chance that you wouldn't if God were to humor you because there's a mountain of evidence already there. So I want to encourage you, if you are struggling with faith, there's hope. Look, there, he has given us his word. He's given us many examples of how he worked in the past. He's given us the church, people that will speak hope and life into you. He's left us, um, there's still accounts of miracles, uh, of faith that happened today. The Linhart shared last week about how after praying for Mirren and asking others in the church to pray that God healed her of her allergy. So we should take heart. God is alive. He is working. And we should be, we of all people have hope. So may your hearts trust in him and look to him with eager expectation and may he move us along in our unbelief and build our faith. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you again for your word. It is humbling. It is penetrating but it is also hopeful and encouraging. I thank you that we were able to spend some time on it this morning. I pray that you'll use these next six weeks to demonstrate, Lord, your justice, your love, your hope, your peace. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be encouraged. There's a dying world that needs this message. And so I pray that you give us the shrewdness and the wisdom and how to share it in love. Let us be let us speak the truth in love and let us be innocent before you. We are incapable of doing any of these things apart from you. So we pray for your help. In your name, amen.